Welcome to Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime. Episode 1 of a special series of episodes dedicated to organized crime on our oceans. Today, featuring Pulitzer Prize winning author and former New York Times writer Ian Urbina. Music by the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Crime Spot. Today we have a special episode on organized crime on our oceans. I'm Esther and I'm here with Felix. Hello everyone, we're happy to be back, especially as Esther said, as of today we're officially launching a series of podcasts on crime on our oceans as both an actor, environment and facilitator of organized crime. Over the next few podcasts we're going to explore how and why so much organized crime takes place out at sea what exactly is going on and what has been done about it. And as part of these series, we are so fortunate to have interviewed a number of experts on these topics, including Ian Urbaner, investigative journalist, Pulitzer Prize winner and former New York Times writer. Yes, and Ian and his work will accompany us throughout the special series on crimes on our oceans. And for this first episode, we would like to share the full interview with Ian, as it will be a reference point for some of the future episodes. Exactly. So actually, Ian left the New York Times to launch the Outlaw Ocean Reporting Project, which comprises, among other materials, both a book, The Outlaw Ocean, and a music project. So over the course of five years, Ian reported out at sea, boarding vessels to directly bear witness of the lawlessness taking place. This reporting did give way to a book as well as to the creation of an audio library called The Outlaw Ocean Music Project. And for the latter, Ian partnered up with musicians from across the world in an effort to use sound and music to share his stories. The music that you heard at the beginning of this episode comes from this project and we are so happy to be using it throughout this special series on crime on our oceans. Exactly, and we will also share a full song of this series of the Outlaw Ocean Music Project at the very end of this uh, episode. And essentially, this Outlaw Ocean Reporting Project is about human rights and environmental crimes of all sorts at sea. And the book, The Outlaw Ocean, talks about murder of stowaways, arms trafficking, murder on camera, intentional dumping of oil... You know, illegal whaling, illegal fishing, human slavery, abortions at sea, stealing of ships by maritime repo men. Um, it's really a wide range of fascinating stories and you can check the entire project out at www.theoutlawocean.com. And if you like the work of Ian and his team and want to support it, please consider giving a donation. Reporting of this type is rare, expensive and urgently needed which is why Ian and his team has created this project as a non-profit organization solely dedicated to publishing more of these stories. Absolutely. I mean, we often forget that in order to take effective action, we actually need the information first, right? But Felix, one of the wonderful things about the Outlaw Ocean is that Ian is such a fine storyteller and he somehow appeals to our deepest humanity and makes us, the reader, relate to the stories and the sufferings of so many unknown people living such different lives and so far away. Is there one story or character in particular that struck you? For me, it was really the sheer variety of different crimes taking place on OLC, and not only crimes as such. I mean, the book is not called The Crime Ocean, but The Outlaw Ocean, and that really hits the nail on the head because some stories are not about crime per se, but about what can happen when there is an absence of regulation. What do you mean? So, for example, in one chapter, 
Ian tells the story of Rebecca Gompert, who runs Women on Waves, and a long story short, Rebecca uses the absence of regulations on international waters to provide women with the opportunity to have an abortion in countries where it is illegal. She shuttles pregnant women out of ports far enough to reach international waters, that means 12 nautical miles offshore of whichever country. And after this 12 nautical miles mark, so roughly 22 kilometers, national regulations are not effective anymore and women can have abortions without committing a crime. So in the book you will find these kind of stories and in the next chapter you're back to, you know, human slavery on board of fishing vessels, mutiny and murder. It really is an extraordinary book in that it's both extremely inspiring and at the same time deeply disturbing. But without further ado, let's get the interview started. For those of you who are not familiar with Crimes on Our Oceans, we hope that this interview will inspire you to learn more about it and to tune into our upcoming episodes. For those of you who have prior knowledge or might even have read Ian's book, The Outlaw Ocean, we also attempt to shed light on his work as an investigative journalist, as well as his field research, as well as discuss, you know, what is the role of investigative journalism as an agent of change in the 21st century. So we hope you find this interesting too. Thank you for, for being on our show and uh, welcome to Crime Spot. Um, the first question that we thought about was trying to understand who you are and what your trajectory was, because you're an investigative journalist, right? But you, this wasn't your initial career plan. As a matter of fact, you were studying anthropology and we were wondering how did this change happen and to what extent would you say that your background in anthropology still influences your writing as you wrote, for example, The Outlaw Ocean Project? Well, the, the change happened um, in that I was working on my doctoral dissertation in anthropology, and I was based in Cuba at the time, and um, I really loved the life of the mind um, and liked the process of writing and very much liked being in foreign settings. Um, what I was becoming disenchanted by was my view of the academic life, especially in the U.S., as I sort of looked on the horizon of where I would end up as a professor, um, didn't look too enticing um, in the sense that um, the the pay is very low and you often get sent to someplace at a university when you first start in you know a far-off state. And um, very, most importantly for me, very few people, the, the, the big concern was not, not many people read what you write. And that was a major driver to wanting to go into journalism because I thought it was the life of the mind. It was more caffeinated. It also put a premium on not the ability to obfuscate and make simple things complicated, like I think some academics do, but rather the reverse priority, which is if you can't explain it to a seventh grader, then you've failed as a journalist. And so you have to really be able to speak plainly and explain things well. And I like that ethic better. Um, so for all those reasons, I was enticed into journalism. And then, you know, the anthropology in particular as a subject matter, um, I think was born, you know, I wanted to be Jane Goodall when I was a boy, you know, I wanted to go be as smart as her and go to far off places and be outside with people that were very different from me. Um, and that is the same spirit that drew me into anthropology. And then journalism seemed like you could do that travel 
um, but also with a conscience where you had at least an investigative journalist an agenda to try to highlight things that are broken and, and sort of without becoming an advocate, at least show the world either invisible problems or invisible people and sort of draw attention towards uh, needs, you know, social outcomes. So those are the things that drew me uh, into journalism and investigative journalism. Yeah, that like makes complete sense because you're always with academics. You no, know, you're always looking to how you can actually advocate for your cause once the paper is is written. I guess. So, I guess my my next question is like, why maritime crime? Why this interest in the ocean? Because your book really outlines um, several forms of criminality, um, and you draw extensively on your field research. So, perhaps you could explain a little bit what that field research actually entails yeah. and what you're trying to achieve through that. Yeah, I mean, so um, what interested me, so I've been a journalist for two decades and my mandate was investigative. And so that meant as different from a beat reporter where you're supposed to chronicle the day's events, you know, in some geography, you know, you cover these states or you cover the White House or you cover this industry and you're supposed to sort of just update the public on what's happening from all sides. Investigative has a different mandate, right? You're supposed to find virgin snow. You go out there, you explore topically and you look for things that are new or that can be rendered new, um, that are broken. And then you obviously have to render them in a way that's fair and rigorous and not biased, but you're, you're really doing agenda based prosecutorial style investigation. And, um, I liked that. And what attracted me about the sea was as a boy, I was always, um, drawn romantically, you know, kind of naively to the blue on the map, you know, just that the grand open spaces, what's it like to be a kid on that little island? How do people get there? Do they have avocados? You know, like, does everyone eat fish? You know, just really simple questions about these far off worlds on planet Earth. And then in grad school, I spent some time working on a ship. And what interested me even more wasn't the place and the blue and the marine environment, but the people, you know, the 56 million people globally who work out on that two thirds watery frontier um, are people that are huge, transient, kind of a diaspora tribe that you rarely hear from. And they're all over the place and they live this whole other world and we depend on them for 90% of the products we consume. And so I thought, how is it that I never read stories about this universe and these people? And wow, they happen to be really interesting people. They have all sorts of their own language and their own rules and their own customs and their own crime. And crime is just kind of like a lens. Like if you discover an Amazon village and you're trying to figure out how to tell the world about them, you can approach it through family structure or approach it through linguistic anthropology or approach it through political hierarchies or approach it through crime. And crime is sort of an alternate way to talk about the edges of rules and how people interact or how they shouldn't interact, you know, and like all those sorts of things. And so for me, I was most interested in telling the world about the people in this crazy far off place that's all over, you know, that covers most of our planet and specifically telling people readers about the people out there and then also telling them that when you think of maritime crime if i'm talking to my mom or my 16 year old son you historically think of 
Captain Phillips-style Somali piracy or the BP spill, right? The Hollywood has burnt those things into our brains. But truth be told, the spectrum, the taxonomy of activity out there, whether legal or illegal, ethical or not, um, is really wide. And one of the agendas was talk about the people, talk about the space, and broaden our overall awareness of how wide that taxonomy is and what are the various species of activity and players in it. Interesting. And this is, I can really uh, recognize your anthropology background and, and how you sort of mentally approach this, like always with the human-centered um, mindset in, in investigating these things. And, you know, what I wondered while reading your book is really, I mean, you describe how you have contacts and how you get on the ships. But I, what boggles my mind is how you, you end up in this in these ports. How do you convince people, mm. hey, I'm going to, I want to make a story. Can I live with you on your ship? Or can you carry me 50 miles out so that I can jump on the next port? Is it, is it only money or like, how, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of when I was talking about the difference between a beat reporter and an investigative reporter, one of the main differences is their mission, and um, the other is the luxury of time, right? A beat reporter has to turn around a story every six hours, 12 hours, two days, right? They're on a whole different life cycle. Uh, investigative reporter has the, you know, has the life cycle of a a blue whale, you know, it's like they, they like, you know, might produce a story. We our best investigative. He just retired. Um, David Barstow, he's won more Pulitzers than anyone on the planet. And, you know, you wouldn't hear from David for two years. Like, he, he, you know, he just disappears for, and he's on salary. And it's like, has anyone heard from David? No. But then when he shows up, he's got like he, big game, you know, killed and on his shoulder. So like um, you have the luxury of time. And if you're with a good editor who really protects that luxury, um, then you you use that luxury to great effect, right? So Songkla, Thailand, a port town, a gritty port town, crime-ridden port town in southern Thailand, um, notorious for some of the worst sea slavery problems because the ships that leave out of Songkla are the distant water fleet ships, right? And so they're going to Bangladesh and Somalia and whatnot. And so they're really dependent not just on migrant traffic labor, but like captive labor that they've sometimes um, shanghaied, you know, kidnapped. Um, so, you know, we think, okay, if we're going to tell the sea slavery story, let's go to Songkla. Now, you don't walk up to the port day one in Songkla, two white boys, you know, from Western media and expect to like even get into the port. You go, you get a hotel room, you have all sorts of pre-reporting you've done to find good people who know the community there, who can get you to convince some captains to meet you for drinks. You meet the captains on night one for drinks. You bro it up. You, you know, you talk with them. You don't go anywhere near any requests. You just, you just want to meet them and, and your agenda as far as they know. And there's no, um, deception here. You just, it's just incremental relationship building, but you need to know that it's probably going to take you two weeks before you even get to the right people and to the right relationship level where you can say, Hey, like, Is there any chance you would consider if we were to pay you for the, the, you know, the fuel and everything taking us out, you know, you know, just like, but you don't want to ask that until you've had a bunch of these time, you know, with, and that's 
Now, every trip you can't drop two weeks of sitting around a shitty port town, you know, like, um, uh, but some places you're only going to be in Borneo for a week and you need to hustle. Um, but you usually, number one, um, have done a lot of homework so that when you do get in front of someone who might allow you access to a world, you can convince them that you've done your homework, you understand their perspective, you've read a lot up on um, the language and lifestyle of, of them, and you're very respectful of them, even if you have questions that might have unflattering answers to them. Um, and that usually is enough. Because on that note, even in the book, you really do invite um, the reader to question their own moral standards, and you do question the... Um, you know, what are the ethics behind this? And, you know, to what extent does reporting advantage or disadvantage victims? And how do you bring perpetrators to justice while still being an investigative journalist? What is that role in that space? And I mean, this is a very big stretch, but how do you find the line between, you know, wanting to report on this, wanting to raise awareness, trying not to judge anything because, you know, you're trying to be objective and you're trying to report what is happening as objectively as possible and you know to some extent how to not how how do you approach it to not be a criminal investigator to not um you know want to bring perpetrators to to justice yeah i mean well first of all you've read the book closely and that's a real um honor so thank you for that i mean you clearly get some of the challenging nuances that to this day i struggle with still um and i do think uh um uh the the balancing act i um am constantly grappling with are as you quite rightly said on the one hand not wanting to become so much the journalist that i forget myself as an ethical human right as a human as a citizen as a consumer um cuz i think that when you become such the journalist and you don't even consider that maybe in this moment you should stop being a journalist and you should intervene. Like if you don't have that capacity, then you've dehumanized yourself. But the flip side is if you are too ready to jump in and be involved, then you lose your credentials and your credibility as a journalist. And so checking that line while you're in the process um, is key, right? So, um, uh, Life or death situations, for example, in the book where the Indonesians and the Vietnamese are about to light each other up with heavy machinery, heavy machine guns. And for reasons that, you know, I might disagree with, both cultures are um, unwilling to allow a female, the only female who actually can translate between the two sides, to be the negotiator. And so I'm the only other option well, that's journalistically a no-go zone because I'm supposed to be telling the story, not involved in it. But then again, there are lives at stake here, including my own. So those are like, you know, okay, no-brainer um, scenarios. Um, but I, I also just think a certain transparency about how murky these judgment calls are, like to what degree in recounting these crimes and these abuses, are you potentially slipping into a form of misery porn, you know, and, and a sort of exploitative voyeurism. Um, I think just being open about that risk 
and then showing your math, if you will, like in school where you had to show how you got to that answer, like, you know, showing, well, I think that this book will have a valuable social outcome. And the fact that Lang Long, the guy who's shackled by the neck and all these other people gave me their stories, and then I'm exploiting those stories to um, sell a book um, has also the benefit for Lang Long and many other Lang Longs. Like, here's how. Well, I've crafted an appendix. I've left my job at the New York Times and I'm dedicating my life to producing this journalism to tell more stories so that people will do something about it. Um, and I provide to some extent a roadmap of what they might do. Those are all things that I do hoping that I haven't crossed the line. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my best stab. Yeah. Maybe you could, for our listeners, sort of explain your discovery of human trafficking of these fishing vessels and especially the intersection with slavery and sex labor and especially sort of from a value chain perspective almost how do people get entrapped in there and how why do they stay yeah well the, that's a lot of questions i'll try to without um eating up the rest of the hour um so first it's important to point out that When you talk about slavery or sea slavery in this case, or human trafficking, it's probably smart to establish a spectrum. And the spectrum is one in which there are different scenarios in which by the textbook definition of trafficking, it's force in the US, force, fraud, or coercion. So it involves entrapment of people using one of these mechanisms ranging from the force, which is at gunpoint or shackling a person by the neck or kidnapping them, to fraud or coercion, meaning psychological methods or debt structures to try to and successfully force people into a relationship, right? That's trafficking. And in the specific um, version of trafficking that is sea slavery, you have, um, let's say, It's happening in lots of places off the coast of the Falkland Islands, off the coast of West Africa, um, uh, and in the South China Sea. There's a quite a robust problem in the Thai fleet, especially, but also Cambodian and Burmese fleets. Um, but in the South China Sea, you have a situation in which it's almost a perfect storm for this problem for uh, several reasons. One, can't, Viet, uh, excuse me, Thailand is a middle class country less than one less than two percent unemployment ties don't take the worst jobs so the sex work industry uh, for example which is robust in thailand or the fishing industry which is robust and and dangerous both of them are awful brutal work um, are not worked primarily by ties they're worked primarily by import labor And Thailand as a middle class, stable, you know, sort of country is surrounded by the opposite. Laos, Myanmar, Cambodia, you know, war torn, desperately poor, unstable countries where the desperation of those people cause a huge influx of those migrant men and women, girls and boys, and they get funneled into one of these two industries often. Okay. And it's a standard story. Same thing on the Mexican-US border and many borders, right? You've got traffickers who are human, 
you know, they're labor brokers is how they would describe themselves. They help facilitate people in need to jobs, right? And they're traffickers and they usually work on a debt structure where, you know, a guy in Cambodia meets another guy, says, hey, do you want a job in construction in Thailand? Yeah, I'd love that. I could make more in a week than I could make in two years in Cambodia. Sure, I'll line it up. Meet me at this location. And the Cambodian says, yeah, but I don't have any money to pay you for this service of you sneaking me into Thailand. Don't worry about it. We'll settle up later. The guy coming into the country, the Cambodian coming into Thailand, gets in the back of a truck and he makes his way toward what he thinks is a construction job, or in the case of girls and women, it's they think they're going to be domestic, meaning a live-in maid nanny. They're usually not destined for that. The women, the, the females are destined for the sex work industry, and the men are destined for the ports and to work on fishing vessels. And they figure that out as they make their way on the journey. But the journey incurs a debt that they owe to the trafficker. Hey, I... I brought you all this way, you owe me 500, the equivalent of 500 US dollars. When they get to the port, if I'm the trafficker, um, then I meet with a captain who needs five guys for his trawler before it can leave. And he says, look, I'll pay you 300 bucks per guy to the trafficker. And the trafficker essentially sell sells the people to the captain. And then the captain has now put out money for these people. And so, in essence, those workers now have a debt to the captain, and they owe that captain money that he paid for their labor. And that's debt bondage. And that's one soft way of how people end up in as sea slaves. The other way is they, you know, get drugged at a brothel where they were carousing, they wake up on a ship, or, you know, they just end up being forced there at gunpoint because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um but this is how many people, tens of thousands of boys and men, end up working on these ships and they're not allowed to leave. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that that sort of covers the basics, the 101 level of sea slavery. No, and actually it's perfect because my follow-up question <laughs> is just on that. Um, it's Perhaps you could expand on who's actually profiteering from um, this these kind of crimes. Like I know it's a bit of a unfair question because you know obviously at various stages of the supply chain there are various interests then they intersect and they diverge and it's it's difficult to identify one single actor but we were we were kind of wondering like how blurred is the line between the victims and the victimizers for instance you you discuss a lot the violence um, on the ships, but you know, to what extent are the captains actually benefiting from mm-hmm. from this kind of crime, and to what extent are they themselves trapped in this vicious cycle? Yeah, I mean, so on the original question of the cast of characters by type, and um, to what degree uh, they are profiting, what I would say is, um, uh, off the top of my head, you have a couple of different categories. You have the trafficker, right? And that person is profiting by moving these people in this way, illegal and immoral way, and they're profiting. And there's a whole grid of them usually along the borders, right? Then you have the bureaucrats and the law enforcement folks who are necessary and always present and very much involved in the only way these players can get across the border is if they have um, friends who are in government and uh, usually complicit. And those folks are a whole other category who profit from this pipeline, right? Whether it's sex trafficking or labor trafficking, etc. Then you have 
the the fishing industry itself and those players so the owner of the company or the captain each of these players is differing let's imagine a hundred dollars right and if just to make it a tangible number you know and you are guessing at a proportionality of how much each character profits you know i could make up numbers but they are different is the point like how much the trafficker versus the guard at the border versus the cop who runs that whole area who knows not to pull those vehicles over versus the owner of that fleet of 10 ships versus the captain on one of the 10 ships. Each of these players is getting a cut of the action. One might be $5, one might be 50 whatever, but they're all profiting. Who's not profiting is the guy, right? Or the female who's getting traffic. They're definitely not profiting. Um, but they're also, if you go out in concentric circles away from this center point, other people that are profiting, that gets all the way to you and me, right? So us as consumers, we are profiting from this because a can of, a $1.99 can of tuna is impossible, right? It, it, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's not actually $1.99. There are all sorts of hidden costs that allow these global supply chains to be impossibly cheap and impossibly efficient. There's no way you can pull a tuna from the South China Sea and have it canned and in a shelf in Washington, D.C. in a week and cost $1.99 when you take into account fuel and all these things without all sorts of hidden costs. And one of them is the corruption infrastructure. That's one kind of form of a subsidy that subsidizes that. Others are just straight up subsidies, governments that are subsidizing fishing fleets and that gets us into overcapacity and all sorts of other problems. But governments are paying for fuel, they're paying for cheaper engines, they're paying for tax breaks for the industry. And these are all subsidies that make an unviable industry viable. Um, but so the crime element, us as consumers also profit from it in that we get cheaper stuff that um, at, and we get the ex, the savings that come from using labor that ends up not ever getting paid or gets paid one-tenth of what is a livable wage. This connects well to um, another question that we had about what can our listeners do? Like, what can we as consumers do? And especially, I mean, the the answer seems obvious in that, um, you know, not, like, not buying fish that is overfished, for example, not buying, you know, looking out for fair trade certifications and the in this industry relevant certifications. But I was wondering, from your perspective, what structurally would have to change to make these certificates, for example, uh, viable in the first place? So you write a lot about this this process of transshipment on the high seas and how I understand the value chain this totally obstructs any any chance of trace and tracking where the fish came from when in fact on the sea the fish already changes hand multiple times between different ships yeah, yeah. well so if we take the simplest of the questions that you pose what can people do and we first pause before going down the specific silo that is about sea slavery or about overfishing and we first say okay if you're looking at the outlaw ocean book or reporting project and it's a reporting project about human rights labor and environmental crimes of all sorts at sea and you first say okay before we answer the what can you do you first have to recognize that um, the book 
talks about murder of stowaways, arms trafficking, murder on camera, intentional dumping of oil, illegal whaling, illegal fishing, human slavery, abortions at sea, stealing of ships by maritime repo men. It's got a wide, right? And so the answer for one is probably not the same answer as for another, right? So first, I would say the the goal of the appendix of the book was to say, don't, as a reader, try to win the war of injustice. Like if you said, how do we solve injustice? Okay, first, don't ask that question because it is too meta. And what you should say is, okay, how do we solve the injustice when it comes in this form? And realize that, at least in my own view, I don't try to tackle winning the war. The war is ongoing. Um, I try to choose my battles. And if your battle is, I really care about ocean plastic, or I really care about coral reefs, or I really care about human slavery, or I really, like, then then we're moving in the right direction. So you choose your battle, the thing that most speaks to you, the way you can most relate and you feel like you want to get involved, and then you look at the specific solutions to that. Okay, so that's prior upstream to your question. Now, your question, though, then narrowed in on fish tracking, sustainable fishing, legal fishing, um, and ensuring at minimum that um, the shrimp or the tuna or whatever that ends up on your plate has less chance of being tied to human slavery and illegal fishing. Okay. Um, certification. So, uh, yeah, there's a whole list of things that both governments and the market, meaning suppliers and consumers, the buyers and sellers of the stuff, and I even think they have the biggest role to play, could require of their supply chain it would bring the price up and it would bring delivery times down. Uh, I mean, make them slower, but um, could say, hey, look, from now on, we at Whole Foods markets or at the U.S. government that supplies military bases and public schools, we're not going to buy any more tuna or whatever it is unless it has these 10 things. We know where it, every ship it came across. None of those ships were involved in transshipment at sea, meaning you know, picking up sh- fish from lots of different ships before it gets to port. All the ships had transponders, so their location was known at all times. The crew manifest, you know, a whole laundry list of things that would be required before you felt safe in buying that product. And and that would be what a good certification kind of supply chain would look like. And that's not going to probably in this space in particular, as distinct from on land, it's probably not going to ever effectively occur by way of governments because there are too many different players involved and you can't get all the governments cooperate. But big buyers could, in a matter of months, change the world on this. If they just said, okay, we're going to take the high road, new game in town. We're not buying any of your whatever unless you comply with these things. So who among you wants to sell to us um, with these new conditions? And then the sellers and the and the, the the fishing industry would have to change how they do business, and that would that would solve a lot of things. Well, I really hope that people listen and <laughs> actually take action because it yeah it seems that as um, you know as often is the case with, with the listed economies, it's the um, if the consumer and the demand um, cared, <laughs> there would be less of these problems rather than just tackling the supply chain every time. Um, but I, I was hoping to switch lane completely 
and um, to discuss the women because women are often forgotten from any kind of illicit trade um, and we often only portray them as victims rather than as participants um, of lawlessness. And I was just hoping you could share maybe a story or your analysis of maybe a more um, gender lens um, analysis of what's going on um, in maritime crime. Well, so if the request is um, to um, cite examples of females, be they girls or women, who are not victims, then you're taking a, a pool that's like 2% and then reducing it to 0.5%. Um, but what I'll say is this. The maritime world um, is unusually... Uh, um, uh, overrepresented by males. Um, but like you say, there are females present and they're not always just victims. Um, there are culprits. So for example, um, in my own reporting, the places where I encountered women and girls were, uh, number one, I mean, they're, they're individual heroic characters in the book who are involved in, um, things like Rebecca Gompertz, who is a, a gynecologist um, who created an organization um, when she, after she was a doctor with Greenpeace and she saw around the world in many places um, women and girls in dire need of, of abortions and in, in places where it was not just illegal, it was often deadly to attempt to get an abortion. And um, Rebecca Gompertz and her staff, female staff created this organization to essentially game the maritime law in a way so as to legally um, provide access to these females in need uh, around the world and also to instigate debate around this issue. Um, so you had individual char female characters like that. Um, in the advocacy space, the ocean conservation advocacy space, especially in Sea Shepherd and, and Greenpeace, you had unusually robust, like on the order of 40-50% of the staff on board those ships were female. And a really pretty impressive gender equity jobs, you know, just how uh, females were um, in those organizations and on those ships was really impressive, you know. Um, uh, women captains and there was no work that was genderized. And, you know, um, so, uh, those are some, the, some of the rare places where I saw females, uh, not as victims. Um, obviously the trafficking pipelines where the trafficked females, um, in South Asia, especially, um, overlap with the trafficked males, um, those crisscross. Uh, and then the, there was uh, an inch. Uh, the love boats are these really weird and interesting institutions that um, I've I've gone on to continue reporting, and it is on my current list of things that I'm looking into uh, that I didn't get to access while reporting the book. But they're sort of floating brothels, but they also are dispensaries of drugs, and also everything that you can't get typically used to be able to get when you got in port. There are brothels, and you know, um, but then 9-11 shut everything down. And so most crews can't, even on big Maersk tankers, they can't disembark even if they drop anchor 400 feet from shore. And so that guy can't get his tooth pulled. Um, that guy can't you know, email his nine-year-old daughter whose birthday it was. 
those guys can't go to the brothel that they were hoping to go through. All the, the, the get beer or whatever, they're stuck there. And after a nine month tour at sea, this is a real mental health issue. And all of a sudden, the brothels realized they needed to bring these services, sex work, as well as booze and drugs and good food and internet and all this stuff out to these ships. So love boats emerged and they're dark places, you know, like a lot of trafficked workers on those things. So that's another place where there are females that I had hoped to interview and still I'm working to get on. Reading your book chapter after chapter, it feels like, okay, this, this certainly was the most bizarre and crazy story. And then you turn the next page and you're like, oh, we're not done yet, clearly. <laughs> so, and even also with this, like not only bizarre, but so violent and you write about murder. And so I was wondering, is there any, is there any scene or any like story that you, you realize that you revisit mentally frequently, or is it just a blur of crazy experiences that you made? I mean, so I, after 17 years on staff at the times went back for one year as I had promised after a two-year book leave and spent one more year producing a series about ammunition, you know, the, the global market of ammo. And then I realized, you know what? I, I just can't put that Outlaw Ocean thing down. There are too many amazing stories and there's too little journalism coming out there. And, and I see more than any other thing I've ever reported on a need for journalism because it's a especially dark place. And so I stepped away from the times, went fully back to reporting only on the outlaw ocean. So in a weird way, you, you, the way you ask the question is like this stuff, I'm still living in the book. I'm just in the second book, you know, um, but all these stories are, are still alive. I still talk with all these sources. Um, the Somali seven case, we're actually just about to put a huge page up about that ongoing investigation that's still going and and UN ODC is, you know, a key player. And um, so um, there are things, if what you were questioning, are there any scenes that haunted me or that inspired me and in either fashion stayed with me? Yes. Um, haunted the the brothel in Ranong along the border uh, and the uh, young, very young girls that were uh, to be sold to to me and my photographer colleague um, and just how dark that interaction was. And um, Lang Long, the character who was shackled um, and sort of what a broken human being he was. And just um, me and a source in Thailand have sort of, without Lang Long ever knowing, going on six years now, sort of constantly kept tabs on him and tried to see if we can help get him launched. So that's sort of alive. Um, David Mandawa, the stowaway who survived, um, he still is stowing away routinely and living on the streets. And so these relationships live on. Um, heroic, you know, the Brazilian scientists um, who, you know, waged this really brave effort to block drilling along the ocean front near the Amazon mouth um, and their successes. And then, the Bolsonaro administration reversals um, that stuck with me. And then just the heroism on a very common level of these men and women that I reference these ocean advocates who dedicate their lives to being out there and doing this stuff. And I've been on subsequent embeds with, with all of them, you know, in the last 15 months. Uh, so um, those things keep me buoyed. 
And on that note, um, we were, we were just, we were discussing with Felix, you know, how you're, you know, it's very innovative of you to write the book, but then also develop this, um, um, the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. And so we were thinking, you know, to what extent does that help stimulate social change? Like perhaps you could tell our listeners about that because it's quite, quite unique, um, as a, as a project and as an idea. Yeah. It's an oddball thing. It's, it's, um, it's a duck-billed platypus. You know, it's a strange creature. Um, uh, so at its root, the thought was um, one that had sit with me for a bunch of years. I don't play any musical instruments, but I consume a lot of music and omnivorously, you know, from hip-hop to classical and everything in between. And I have a real admiration for people who have that ability and talent. Um, and so I thought it would be really neat Um creatively to uh, find a way to work with musicians and to take um, the journalism, uh, its urgency, its emotional valence, um, uh, and um, team up with musicians. And the thought was, what if I, on the simplest level, um, well, initially I was thinking of something like Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, I take the book, I join some rappers, I have them do a rap rendering of these stories and these characters, and we put it out in that alternate form. And then I quickly realized the economics of dealing with rappers was complicated, to put it mildly. Um, and so uh, I switched to a more accessible realm, which was electronic artists who are usually, you know, guys and gals and with their Mac in their parents' basement, super talented, but very low budget. And... Um, I thought, well, why don't I team up with these artists around the world and um, say, would you take this body of intellectual property and would you connect with it in two ways? One is emotionally, the the stories, the characters, the topics um, translated into song, you know, it, without lyrics necessarily. Um, see what speaks to you in the book. And then secondarily, um, we created this sound archive of sounds from the reporting itself that was stripped from footage. So machine gun fire in Somalia or chanting Cambodian deckhands on the South China Sea, things that have rhythm and texture and interest and really interesting to the ear. And so we made this sound archive and said, when you start making your songs, might you consider using some of these ingredients, you know, almost like you're a chef. You don't have to, but they're amazingly spicy and interesting and they could liven things up. And we started going out to artists and inviting them to do so. And initially it was five and now it's 425 as of yesterday. And each artist from 80 country countries and each artist is making their own album. So it's usually five to six tracks again in lots of different genres. And we created a company um, to just run the music project and put out the music. And then we, the journalistic play here was we would take the music and then my team, video team, would pair it with footage from the reporting. And then when we got big enough, we've put out 100 albums already. We put out 50 more every two months. Spotify came calling and said, this is incredible. We want to be involved. Um, how, how can we support what you're doing? And I said, well, would you open up your platform and allow me and my team to start essentially running journalism to your listeners. Because my 16-year-old son, for example, like doesn't read the New York Times. He never will, or maybe he will one day. But, um, but he consumes a lot of news through comedy, YouTube, and music. 
right? And he knows a lot about the world. And so I thought, I got to figure out how to get to those, to that demographic, and also get to people differently through their ear, not through their eyes. So the, these were all the ambitions. Yeah, this, this really feeds into um, a discussion that S and I had and being cognizant of the time, we already took so much. So if you allow one last question, maybe, and then we, we will leave you to it. Um, we sort of discussed journalism and the hits that it has taken recently. You know, we have... Um, you have this entire business model struggle of, you know, print media falling apart, um, people switching online. At the same time, people are, are used to consume their, their, the news for free when they're on online or on their phone. And this paired with, you know, increased violence against journalists, you know, this entire fake news that receives so much, um, support from the wrong people, so to say. And we realized that your, your music project really also has the potential to, sort of to stimulate some sort of other revenue than ads to sort of sustain your reporting. And in that line, we also spoke about another thing that many people consume these days, and that is obviously Netflix. And as far as we know, Netflix has bought the rights of your book. And we were interested in, um, sorry, it's a really long, (laughs) I come come to a conclusion now. So Netflix, wants to make money and such companies not only make money with the truth, but also with sensationalism. So with your mission to tell the truth through this media, sort of how do you, how do you sort of manage the control of that? Or how do you strike the balance? Do I question mark? Like is the real, I I don't know yet because um, so the Netflix thing is this. So Leonardo DiCaprio and Netflix joined up to buy the rights for the book before the book was published. Um, their plan was and is we, we, the whole team of folks, meet every couple months to discuss things, to produce several product lines. One was a feature film that a screenwriter would write, sort of um, standard two-hour film. Whether DiCaprio was in it or wasn't would be decided at the 11th hour depending on what script was written Um, and no not as the journalist one of the rules that we had in the contract was nothing can be created that has the journalist as some action hero that's not what this is about Um, but one product line would be the feature film the other product line would be a scripted series which is a fiction series and that um, the feature film is sitting there on the shelf they haven't really moved forward yet on that because they want to move forward on the scripted and the non-scripted scripted is um, a series for netflix it would be almost like narcos of the ocean it would be a drama series it would be largely written by a you know team and it would be based loosely on this whole universe of crime right um and then and i'm getting to your question um and then the other of the three-headed hydra other head is the non-scripted and that's the documentary that's the um non-fiction okay of those three heads of the hydra the one that i care most about and have most control over is the non-scripted is the non-fiction i would be in that it would be presented as true journalism and i would care the most about that um and so i've been very actively involved in trying to figure out who would be the director, what, because they also would be coming with me, 
you know, I'm still doing the journalism. So they'd be having a team come with me. They've been with me on a couple of trips. Um, uh, and that's where I feel like um, I can have a role on this point of trying to the scripted stuff and the feature film, you either say go for it or you don't, but attempting to control it is a lost cause, you know? Um, uh, and I, th- you know, you have some seat at the table and if it starts veering off in a terrible direction, I think you can complain, but like I've had multiple things turned into movies before and I had zero role. Like I found out on the front end that they bought it. And then I found out it was coming out in two months. I never saw a script. I had, you know, like, um, so, uh, in that whole universe, you don't really have a whole lot of say and, the only thing you can control is whether they use your name in the credits or not. And, you know, um, in this case, they bought the rights to the book and with that came my name. So, but the, but the fiction front, uh, excuse me, the non-scripted non-fiction documentary series, um, hopefully will be well done and have a lot of control. I think we both really look forward to <laughs> to watching it, but we've already gone over time. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us. Like this has been incredibly insightful. All right, take care, guys. Take care, Ian. Bye. We are here to peacefully protest the introduction of floating nuclear power stations in the Arctic. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. We hope you enjoyed it. For those of you who would like to know more about Ian's work, we will link his website in the show notes. There you can find all the information about his book, his music, as well as his upcoming projects. Before we leave, we would like to encourage you all to consider making a donation to Ian's nonprofit. Ian's work provides a voice to so many that live in the darkness, that suffer human rights violations on an ongoing basis. We need people like Ian to ensure that these issues are addressed and that the victims of maritime crime, may that be slavery or human trafficking, are given a voice too. So to donate, please head to Ian's website. We will link it in the show note. And that concludes our episode for today. See you soon. See you soon. Concretely, we demand that it carries out a full environmental impact assessment of the entire project of the Academic Lomonosov, including loading, testing, transport from Urbans to Bebek, operation, decommissioning and waste management. We demand to carry this out in the form of a transboundary environmental impact assessment and an auspices of the Arctic Council. Greenpeace also makes this call to other Arctic states and asks them to support this demand and facilitate it.
schools to take the opportunity to become a champion in sustainable development of the North. That means development of energy efficiency, development of renewable energy sources, development of a livelihood of the population that respects their traditions and lives. Many people are shocked about the plans to operate the Academic Domonosov. We ask you in their name, stop this project. Stop the devastation of the Arctic.